All right, we are going to open the Word of God together. So um, if you have your Bible, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are uh, going through this series um, called Hallowed Be Your Name. And the whole, the whole point of it, we did an Ecclesiastes series in the fall, and so much of that was just about like searching um, through our spiritual lives and trying to find um, what it is that we were made for and, and what we're living for and, and meaning in life and how elusive that is. And we're taking the beginning of this year to drill down on some basic theological truths. So um, many of us have been around church for uh, years and years and years. And so these are truths that we, we if we're honest, we kind of get numb to a little bit because you talk about it all the time. Um, who, who is God the Father? Who is uh, God the Son? Who is God the Holy Spirit? We talk about these things all the time, but we're, we get numb to it. And so we're, we're trying to remind ourselves to, to draw ourselves beyond the apathy back to a place of, that's right, this is who he is for me. This is what I'm invited into. This is what I belong to. And for those of us that haven't been around church for years and years, um, it's, it's just an invitation to kind of step into some of the terminology that we use and some of the, the concepts and the symbols and to get uh, a taste really of who God is and what he's inviting us into. This morning, my, um, my task is to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. And um, when, I, when I first decided I wanted to be a, a pastor, I was at Cal Poly, just a state college, and um, one of my professors who was not a believer, he said, um, you know, I, I really respect preachers because they have to get up there and deliver the same message every week to the same group of people and somehow keep them interested in it. And, um, and uh, I don't know if there was a slam in there or not, but I think that the Bible is very diverse and there's so much that's fascinating in there, but also he's kind of right, you know? Like this morning, we're going to talk about the cross. How many times have we talked about the cross, or you've thought about it, or you've seen uh, the symbol of the cross everywhere, all the time? It's, it's ever around us. And what I would love to do this morning is get us to a place of seeing it um, fresh, in, in a way that's fresh, in a way that goes beyond the apathy, or the way that kind of breaks into our understanding, and we can see, yes, I understand what, um, what the cross of Jesus is all about. That's my goal. I want to start um, here because this is where Paul starts. Um, he starts by talking about love. And, and love, I believe, makes us do like the craziest things. So I, you know, it's everything from when I was in um, high school and I had a girlfriend. She lived like one town over, but it was long distance. And I would like do the, the thing that was unthinkable to my dad and talk to her on, like for an hour on the phone with long distance charges. And, um, and it's just like I just, I, you know, I started at school, but I had to talk to her for a long time later. Getting, getting older, love meant, like, I, I would, like, drive a long ways. Like, Laura and I would go do uh, crazy things, like, go, you know, go travel places further, go to restaurants that were more than we could afford. But it's just like, I just want to be with her. And I, I you know, and so you, you kind of do these things. Um, when I graduated from college, I was in seminary working on my master's degree, and um, I would have, like, so much homework, like, so much homework. I was working full-time at the same time, but um, my evenings I would spend with Laura, and we'd hang out. And then I would put her to bed and I would do like hours of Hebrew homework. And it's just like I, I, I couldn't afford the time, but I was not going to not spend that time with Laura. I bet if we went through uh, this whole group here, we'd find these crazy stories of things that we've done for love. And the thing is, it's, it's irrational, right? Like it doesn't, doesn't make sense. We, it's a little bit insane. Um, it's, it's wasteful, you know, like the, the, the gas and the, the time and all that kind of stuff. We can't afford all that. But if you reframe it, right, it's only wasteful if the object of your love is not worth anything, right? Uh, love itself matters because the people that we love matter. And so we, we prioritize things in a way that other people might think are crazy um, because we love 
that, that one or that thing, that person, like we love, like love drives us to do crazy things. Paul's passage here is all about this. We are loved by God, and the love of God leads him to do things that are crazy, maybe, some might say. Um, uh, leads him to do crazy things, and then Paul's going to say, it leads me to do things that are crazy. That, that in the world's eyes, like nobody does these things that I'm doing, but I'm doing it because I can't help it because of God's love. So all that to say, here's how Paul puts it. We're in 2 Corinthians 5. I want to start in verse 14, and Paul says it like this. For the love of Christ controls us, he says. It's an intense word. The love of Christ controls us. I, I first memorized it in the New King James, and it says compels, I believe. And, um, but the word I was looking it up, it's like, it's really intense. It's like, it's like stronger than compels. It's stronger than like the love of Christ motivates us. It's like the love of Christ does something that like I can't resist. You know, it like draws me irresistibly into a course of action. Like there's, I, I like can't do anything different because Christ loves me in this way. And so I'm drawn into this, this kind of action. And he's going to explain what that is. Um, but I, just as a starting point, I love the fact that he's saying everything he's about to say, everything he's going to describe to us is not about guilt. It's not about duty. It's not about obligation. It's not about achievement. Everything he's going to tell us is about love. And it's, not, it's just not just his love. He's saying the love of Christ, the way that I am loved by Jesus and the way that Jesus loves the world around me, it just it controls my actions. Like it just, I can't help but go and do this because of how much God loves me. That is a beautiful thing. As I processed it this week, I've decided this is the all I want to be. All I ever want to be as a human being is someone that is just controlled by the love of Jesus. What a, what a cool way to view yourself. It's just like, that's, that's who I am. I'm just someone that like, that Jesus loves me and he loves people around me. And so everything I do is explainable by that fact. And, and I'm telling you, that's like my prayer. I've been praying that for our church family here. What if we were a church that was known for absolutely nothing else other than the love of Christ just controls us? Like we are just so dominated by the way that Jesus loves us. It leaves such a mark on us and has such a pull on our, our deep selves that we are drawn into love. So Paul says in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because... We have concluded this. There's a conclusion. There's something he's decided on. He's arrived at this conclusion. And so what is that conclusion? It's this, um, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul's conclusion Jesus died, and somehow everybody has together died in him. Like, this is kind of a weird thing. The, the, the love of Christ controls us, and I'm like, here's why. Because I made this conclusion, we've all died when Jesus died. Like, it's a, it's a weird, like, death-focused beginning to this whole thing. But there's this death of Jesus that somehow spreads to the rest of us. Paul is putting the death of Christ in a really central place in this whole argument that he's going to make. Um, elsewhere, like in, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how when I came, I, I wanted to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's something about the death of Jesus, something about that cross that is just so vital and so central to the whole thing. So I, I want to invite you, take a like thought experiment with me. So think for a second. Jesus came to earth, okay? Jesus uh, came, just picture him coming. He, he's like, he's God who created the world. We, Nathan led us through that a, a few weeks ago. 
God who created the world, he comes and he, he like takes on flesh and he dwells among us. Jesus, just imagine him like he's teaching the ways of God as he did. And he, he's telling these parables and these powerful teachings on behalf of God, showing us who God really is. He's performing miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, um, like uh, casting out demons, all these things that Jesus did. And imagine Jesus does that and he calls his followers. And at the end of it all, he doesn't die, but he just goes back to be with the Father. Imagine like a faith in Jesus that looks like that. All of the great examples that Jesus did, all the great teaching, all the great powerful works, but he doesn't die at the end of it. What would that religion look like? What would that faith look like for us? I think we'd, we'd have a direction to follow, right? We'd have an example to, to follow. Um, I think we'd have like an invitation and a call to do a certain kinds of things. But I think at the end of the day, what that would mean would, would be we would set out to follow Jesus and we would have all of his great example and everything he's called us to. And then we would find ourselves totally inadequate to do the things that he's calling us to do. And we'd be exhausted. And we'd be beating ourselves up over like, man, I just, I get where Jesus is trying to get me to go, but I cannot get myself to do that. I think that's exactly where we'd end up. We'd be exhausted. I think we'd turn on each other in our frustration. I think we'd feel totally inadequate in ourselves. And we'd reach this dead end and basically... I think that's the exact dead end that every single religion in the world comes to, is you're called to something beautiful. You're called to, like, love and, and worship and these kinds of things, but there's no resources to actually do it because we still find ourselves, human beings, incapable of doing everything the way that we should do them, right? The death of Jesus, in the death of Christ, Paul's going to explain to us, in the death of Jesus, there is this invitation for us to, he, he says like this in verse, um, verse 14, he died for all, that those who live might not, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So why did Jesus die? So that we wouldn't have to live for ourselves anymore. And before you say thank you to God for that, just think about what he's saying. He died to set us free from having to live for ourselves. That, that like, if you're in the wrong frame of mind, that doesn't sound like a win, does it? Right? Like, we want to live our lives for ourselves. I want to make money so that I can buy things that I like, right? I want to uh, make the kinds of friends that, that surround me that make me feel good about myself. I want to achieve certain things in life so that I can, like, be a certain kind of person. We're, like, set up, our society is set up to reward us to say, yes, live your life for yourself. Don't let anyone else tell you who you are. And Paul's saying, Jesus died to set you free from all that. Meaning that, like, that self-focused kind of life is actually bondage. It doesn't get you anywhere good. It just gets you to this place where you're just frustrated and you're, you're, you're like, this is what Ecclesiastes was about. You try it all and you realize it does not actually satisfy in the end. I can have everything I ever wanted and realize that what I wanted was so shallow and so inadequate and so unsatisfying. So Jesus died to set us free from that, free from the domination of like pleasing ourselves and doing what we think we want free from our self-promotion and our self-dominated way of living. And instead, there's this invitation to instead live for him. Uh, he died so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus is inviting us to live for him. And as Nathan shared with us a couple weeks ago, as J Jesus said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. We find life in Jesus. There's a freedom in finding life in him. So the, the, the big question, Paul doesn't answer it really in this, in this passage. Um, it, the crazy thing about talking about the cross, by the way, is we could have gone to almost any passage in the whole New Testament. So, so there's so many angles on this, and there's so many things to be said about the cross of Jesus. The question he doesn't answer here is, 
how, how does Jesus' death do what it did, okay? And if you are a nerd, then you've studied theology and you've looked at atonement theories, okay? So I want to I want to um, give you the lay of the land in terms of how have Christians throughout history answered the question of how did how, Jesus died and somehow we find uh, our own death and our own life, resurrection in Jesus' death. How does that come to happen, okay? And there's like, there's like innumerable uh, theories or models put forward for what that looks like. One early one that sprang to the surface is called recapitulation theory. I'm not going to spell it because you don't need to know it and you can forget it as soon as I say it. But I, I, I want you to kind of think in terms of um, how are we explaining what happened when Jesus died. So the recapitulation looks like this. God created Adam and he was in the garden. He could have followed and obeyed God or he could have disobeyed. And he, of course, chose to disobey and he went this way instead of worshiping and following God, right? So what Jesus did is he came and he kind of stood as the, a, a new Adam, a second version of humanity. And this time, humanity got it right because it's Jesus. And so in Christ, we, we get to experience what God actually intended for humanity to be. It's this beautiful recapitulation, summing up of what humanity was meant to be. And we find that in Jesus. How does that sound? It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like it. I like it. It, it works, okay? Um, there was, a little later on, there was developed the, the ransom theory, which looks like this. We as human beings in our sin have become enslaved to the devil, and Jesus himself died as a ransom to pay the price to, like, buy us back. Like, think of a ransom payment for a kidnapped victim or something like that. And so Jesus died, and his death was so valuable, he paid the devil um, for our souls and wins us back from that. Now, I like the general outline of that, but I don't think the devil ever owned us, and I don't think Jesus is paying a price to the devil. So this gets revised throughout history of maybe the, the payment goes to the Father himself, but there's some good things, there's some problems. Another view comes out um, called Christus Victor, and this looks at this. There are powers of evil all around us, and, and we involve ourselves in that in our sin, and Jesus in his life and in his death basically goes to the devil um, and the powers of evil and just says, you have lost, and I am defeating death and sin and everything that holds us, and so Jesus' whole life and his whole death is all about victory over sin. I, I think this is a great way to view the whole thing. One of the early uh, formulators of this is John Chrysostom. He said it like this, never yet was the devil in so shameful a plight for while expecting to have him, he lost even those he had. And when Christ's body was nailed to the cross, the dead arose. At the cross, death received his wound, having met his death stroke from a dead body. I just love that. Just showing how in Jesus in his death brings life and just empties out um, uh, everything that, that evil thought that it had won. Uh, a cool way of looking at the whole thing. There's satisfaction theory that talks about how God's honor was maligned through our sinful actions and Jesus in his death and resurrection restored the honor of God. That's a beautiful way to look at it. There's a moral influence theory that talks about how Jesus set us an example through everything in his life and even in his death showing us that like the way to live is by laying down your life for those that you love. And so there's this influence, this um, morality that we see through Jesus. That's also true. Um, there's penal substitutionary atonement, which means um, there's a, a debt of sin. Because we have disobeyed God, there's this debt that we owe to God. And Jesus came in, and he took our place, took our sin upon himself, and he died. And, and um, on our behalf, he, um, he makes atonement for our sins. He substitutes himself for us, takes the punishment that we should have um, experienced ourselves. And through that, we find life in Christ. And I'll, I'll just say with the penal substitutionary atonement view, that is really core. It's really central to what we're talking about when we talk about the death of Jesus. But, but I'd also like us to just step a half step back and just realize 
all of these ways throughout church history. It's, it's Christians for thousands of years saying, what did Jesus' death mean? And they're thinking through all of these aspects of it. And there's a sense in which they're all kind of right. Like Jesus' death did all of that, right? It, it, it restores our relationship with God. It forgives us of our sins. It, it like he took our place, um, the, the debt that like Romans says that the wages of sin is death. Uh, but the free gift of God is free life in, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like that eternal life in Christ. It's like all of these things are true. He's conquered over the powers of sin and death. Like death literally can't even hold us anymore. Death is a transition into life with God because of what Jesus has accomplished. So any way, any angle that you want to look at it from, there's this aspect of yes, that's part of what Jesus did for us. And so all of it should lead us back to, we, we said this the, um, the first week we started the series, we have a tendency in talking about theology where we want to get it right. We want to understand it. And we think the goal is to know and have the answers to these things. But actually, the goal and the invitation is not, to just, not just to have the right answers, um, but to worship, to see God for who he is and say, thank you so much. And when it comes to the cross of Jesus, him dying for us um, and then offering us a death to our, ourselves and all the, the worst things about us and a resurrection to life, when it comes to that, the only way we respond is just saying, thank you so much, Lord. And we worship him as our king, as our Lord, as the one who forgives us, as the one who saves us, as the one who heals us. It's so beautiful. So here, here's how Paul goes on to talk about it. And it, gets, it just keeps getting more stunning in this whole thing. He talks about it in terms of a new creation. So he says in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh— we regard him thus no longer. Now, a little bit confusing, I think, in the, the terminology there, but what it's just basically saying is when, when we saw Jesus before, um, you know, Paul's saying, we saw Jesus, we saw uh, the flesh. We saw his external appearance. We saw a man, right? And, and this was the problem throughout all the Gospels. People are seeing a human being that's, like, talking about forgiving people's sins, and that's, like, problematic, right? Like, how is a human being going to be forgiving people's sins? We, we watched a, a human being, someone externally that should have been, like, kind of an outcast. He was from Nazareth, you know? He, he like, he, like we, we don't know about how he was born, all these kinds of things, and, and this person is healing the sick and casting out demons. This person has power and authority, and he's saying, we all had this problem of looking at Jesus on the external, the outward appearance of like, what did he look like? And, and he says, what happened is we, we basically, we don't think of him like that anymore. We don't look on the external, on the flesh. We think of Jesus now and we see, man, he is God himself who came and died, who came and raised again, the God who brought us life. And so he's saying, when we look at Jesus, we don't see him just as a human being anymore. We see him as something so much deeper, something more profound, someone who uh, is God himself loving us. It's beautiful. And he extends it to saying, we regard no one according to the flesh anymore. So now he says, we, we look around, okay? So, so look at all of us. We're, we're lovely, okay? A great group of people. But like, some of us are, some of us are kind of shady, let's be honest. Like, some of us are kind of shady, and um, some of us are kind of gruff, right? Some of us are exterior, you like, like, oh, that person's in church. Did you see our, um, our percussionist up here with a full sleeve of tattoos? Like, you know, there's that, there's that whole, um, there's that whole side of things where it's like, I don't know what this person is about on the outside, right? The reality is, Paul's saying, like, when we look at people, we don't even we don't even think in terms of the outward anymore because what's happening on the inside with a person, that's what actually matters. And that is drastically different. So the externals that lead us to, uh, you know, put a certain person in a certain category, whatever else he's saying, all of it irrelevant. Like someone could look 
totally homeless. Someone could look like a crazy criminal. I don't, I don't know how you typecast that in your mind, but we all probably have ways. Like, yeah, that per- like, if anyone here is a criminal, it's this person, you know? Um, whatever it looks on the, on the outside, we look on the inside where people are um, putting forth this love and this forgiveness and this grace, like the things that are the fruit of the Spirit living in us. The way Paul says it is like this in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so what Paul's saying is, outside, what you look like on the outside is literally irrelevant. What actually matters is on the inside, where if anyone is connected to Jesus, because Jesus died and raised, we are a new creation. God's in the midst of this old creation. He is creating something new. And that, that new thing he's creating is starting in each of our hearts. And has been for thousands of years, as he takes lives of people like Paul. Paul, who was like so against Jesus, so against the church, that he was like attacking, persecuting, putting people to death, imprisoning them. Paul was doing all this, and then Jesus showed up and said, Paul, what are you doing? And Paul saw Jesus in a different way, and his life totally transformed, and he begins to flood out into the world with love and grace and calling people to be uh, reconciled to Jesus. There's, There's a total difference in who we are as people because of what Jesus has done. It changes absolutely everything. Nathan talked um, on on, uh, New Year's Day. He gave a sermon about um, New Year's resolutions and and basically said how silly they are, right? So honestly, like, can we be honest? It is a little bit silly. We stand there and we're like, you know what? The calendar year changed, so I'm suddenly going to get really good at eating healthy, you know? Or like, I'm going to like really work out this year. And like, like, there's nothing wrong with like making a resolution, making a decision, doing a certain kind of thing. That's all great. But let's be honest, the only power behind your decision to like eat more healthy or work out is simply you making a decision. Like that's all that's changed is like suddenly I decided I'm going to start doing it, right? Now that might work out fantastic for you, but the reality is there's not much behind it. Paul's saying in Christ, there is this reality where God just transforms us, makes you a new creation. So it is not new year, new you, all of a sudden things are different because you've decided to. No, it's New life because Jesus is beginning to work on the inside of me. It's the, it's the new birth that we talked about last week um, as the Spirit of God comes inside of us and makes us alive on the inside. And it's, it's, it's like impossible to explain. Those of us that have experienced it, it's like impossible to really fully explain. But it's like I just, yeah, I find myself, uh, there's more patience in my heart than there used to be. You know, there's more love for people than there used to be. I don't care. I don't need to be affirmed or, or achieve in the way that I used to. There's something that begins changing, and we start asking, why? Why is it different? What's changed in all of this? And ultimately, it's about Jesus. See, the thing is, we think that Jesus is about giving us second chances, but it's, it's way deeper than that. Uh, second chance is great. Like, I, as a parent, I believe in second chances, but if something doesn't change, right, you're just going to end up in the same place again. He does more than just give us second chances. What he does, does is he gives us a second birth, and he gives us a new life, and he gives us a second creation and this opportunity to face the same problem again, but as a totally different person. I mean, that is an amazing gift. And so Paul, just saying it here in the most simple and yet revolutionary way possible, if anyone's in Christ, you're, you're a new creation. You're a different person, and you face life in a totally different way. It's a beautiful invitation to start again, but this time with the source of all life working on you from the inside. Now, Paul's going to go on to explain what happens. It's all about reconciliation here. So look in verse 18. All this, he says, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I want to just pause right there. Think about how amazing what he's saying is. 
all this. So there's this reconciliation we have. He says, all this is from God. And he says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Picture the direction of this. It's from God, okay? It's easy for me to believe, and I'm, I think I'm hardwired as a human to believe it like this. God is loving, and he's great, and he's up there, and he wants me, and there's a path that if I follow it, I will find my way to God. I think everything in me is wired to view it that way. And even though I kind of know better, I have a different view of it, deep down I'm wired to like, okay, God is there, and he loves me, and he's waiting for me, and I just got to go that direction to get to him. But what Paul is saying is we've been reconciled. Our relationship has been healed, but how has it happened? It's from God. Like he's the one that's done it all. Um, He's not creating a path that we can walk down until we get to him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and life. That's what Jesus, so he comes to us, and through Christ, he reconciles us to him. Like all of the initiative, all of the strength, all of the energy is coming from the direction of God reaching out to us and pulling us in rather than him being, I mean, it would be very gracious of God to create a path that we could walk down to find him. But he knows we will stumble, we will fall, we'll turn off to the side, we'll see a squirrel and we'll go a different direction. Like he knows we'll never make it down that path. And so he comes down the path to us. It's beautiful. And I love the picture of it's reconciliation. It's a relationship that was strained. It's a relationship that was broken. Um, And and we know what that looks like, right? Like think of the relationships in your life. It's conflict that causes us to to break apart. It's apathy and hard-heartedness that gets us to break apart. It's our stubbornness. It's our waywardness. It's our different uh, agendas that lead us apart. And think of any relationship you've had that's broken um, and left like it needs to be changed. And here's that reconciliation. It's a beautiful picture. I, I, when I think of reconciliation, I have to think of um, the movie Home Alone. And there's the old guy that's salting the sidewalk, okay? And that poor guy has not talked to his son in years because of an argument that he hasn't remembered. And that poor guy was just waiting for someone like Kevin McAllister to come and tell him, like, you should try calling your son. And he's like, huh. Yeah, maybe I'll try that. And then he calls his son, and the movie ends with they are reconciled, and he gets to have Christmas with his son. It's beautiful, right? Now, it's super naive. Hollywood is always super naive. Um, how, could you, how could you restore a relationship just through a phone call? But here's what I want to say. The brokenness is way more complex than that. And when it comes to our relationship with God, the, the, the brokenness is way more complex than what the guy salting the sidewalk experienced with his son. It's, it's years and decades and lifetimes of us turning our back on God, right? It's the God that actually made us and everything about us is shaped by him. It's the God who's been constantly inviting us and blessing us and yet we still turn our back on him. We turn our back on him and we, we know, okay, there's no life in um, my anger or in my lust or in my self-focus, but we choose those things over him again and again and again. There's all these years and decades of animosity towards God or apathy towards God. So this break in the relationship is massive and it's huge and so, Yes, the sidewalk salter guy at Home Alone is a really uh, shallow version of this. But, but here's the crazy thing. It's every bit as easy as the solution in the movie Home Alone. Like, he picks up the phone and calls his son and it all works out. Like, here's the reality. Everything that's needed for us to come back to God has been done. Like, that's the message of the Bible from beginning to end. Everything that we need in order to be restored to God has already been done. The way is already paved. He is actually not waiting at the end of it. He's come to it, and he is running to meet us, and he's inviting us, welcoming us. He's paid the price. All of our sins are dealt with and forgiven because Jesus died for our sins. So everything that was holding us back 
The only thing that we have to do is simply say, yes, Lord, I believe, I receive, like I, I accept that you've done this for me. I want to be with you as well. Like that is all it is. And this is all because the cross has been this beautiful thing in which Christ took the initiative to restore us to himself. Think of, think, it just, to me, it just blows my mind. I, I think of, think of how cool it is to like meet a celebrity. So I, one of my favorite celebrity encounters, when I was in seminary, I was super, um, super into The Office, and I would watch like every episode like 10 times and, uh, and watch the commentaries where they talk about it. And I, I figured out where they filmed The Office. It was like a mile from where I went to seminary, okay? And so I'm like, this is amazing. I drove by. I'm like, that's literally The Office right there. And that, there's Michael Scott's car right there. Like, it was, it was awesome. So I would start um, eating my lunch on the street outside of where they filmed The Office. <laughs> And, uh, and then when I'm done eating, it's like, oh, I'll just go for a little walk up, you know, by the thing. And one day I saw Phyllis um, walking in. And it's like, Phyllis, Phyllis. And so she was super sweet. She came walking over uh, to the chain link fence. There's no getting through the chain link fence. And she put her fingers through the fence. And I got to shake Phyllis's fingers, like right here. I really did. <laughs> and it was like so exciting because it's like, oh, my gosh, she's such a big deal. Like, like, and look, she's, I know she's a low-key celebrity. I don't even know her name, you know, um, but Phyllis. <clears throat> but it, it was like so cool. That, like I did all this stalker stuff to like get to like shake her fingers, you know. But just think how cool would it be if, if Phyllis was like, I have these fans out there. Like, like, let's get the fans to me. Like, what if she took initiative to be the stalker and be like, I want you to be able to meet me, right? And then, and then of course, take this silly analogy and then multiply it times infinity of God himself, who is not waiting for us to be stalkers and figure it out, but he is racing to us, coming to us. And, just, and look, here's the beauty in the Bible. There's, there's story after story, parable after parable, that portray God as running to us, of begging, inviting people to come in. Like there's, there's, there's um, it's portrayed as a meal that he's like, come on in. And people are like, no, I don't want to come in. He's like, okay, go further out and get everybody that you can and get them to come here. There's the prodigal son where he's just running out to meet his son and bring him in. Story after story, parable after parable of just God wants to be with us. He takes all of the initiative and, and all he wants is for us to just see him for who he is. And look at Paul's language here. Um, in verse 18, it's all from God who through God, uh, through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says in 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul's saying, God dealt with all of our sins in Christ. The trespasses are gone. Everything we've done wrong, God, is, it's forgiven. It's done. It's no longer the hindrance, right? And he's saying God's making an appeal. He's, he's recruited Paul and others, including us, to make an appeal to the other people around us. Like, go out and find them and, like, make an appeal to them. And Paul says, I implore you. Like, I'm begging you. Come be reconciled to God. God's sending Paul, and he sends us to go out and just beg people, like, come and meet the, the Lord of the universe. He loves you, and he's paid everything. And every way that you feel inadequate, and every way that you're broken and lost, like, it gets healed in Jesus Come in and experience it. This is, this is the God that we serve. And every, man, every time religion makes it seem like it's hard to get to God or you've got to try harder or you've got to do better or whatever, every time that religion does that, it's only like this roadblock that's the opposite of God's heart, which is I've dealt with it. I've paid for it. I know what you did. I see what you did. I know what you're going to do in the future, and I don't care because I've paid the price for that, and I, I am uh, begging you, come in. The language that he uses is amazing. And then... The way that he ends this passage, this next verse, is just 
stunning and, and hard to get our minds around. He says it like this in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this reality where he's saying, okay, so for, for our sake, for our benefit, somehow, God is looking at the one who didn't know any sin, Jesus, who was, who was perfectly sinless. God made him to be sin, to like become sin. There's this crazy like identification of our sin, the things that we've done wrong, that God's like, yes, I'm going to take my sinless son and I'm going to so closely identify him with your sin. He's going to take your sin upon himself and he's going to offer himself. He's going he's gonna to give his own life to pay for those sins. Like that's what God is doing. It's crazy how much this sinless God is willing to identify with our sin for our sake, for our benefit. Throughout church history, Jesus has been described as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. As, as king, he rules over everything. He is the one that shows us what life is. It's his kingdom. It's his glory. Like he is our leader and our ruler, and we worship him. As a prophet, he came and announced like what God is really like and calls people to be reconciled to him. And as the priest, there's this reality where a priest like mediates between God and humanity. And Jesus is the priest who comes and he makes this, um, he makes this sacrifice to God. He, the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the priest who makes the sacrifice, sees us in our sin. And he says, don't worry, I'm going to make a sacrifice that's going to heal your relationship to God. It's beautiful. But it goes even further than that because in Hebrews, not only is Jesus the one making the sacrifice, he also is himself the sacrifice that he's offering. He's the lamb that's being offered. It's his blood. It's his life that's laid down. And it's his, like he took it himself. So he both offered the sacrifice and was the sacrifice. And in all of that, he's identifying with our sin. He's taking it to the cross. He's paying the price for our sins and what do we get instead? It says in the second half of that verse, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We, he identifies with our sin so that we can identify with his righteousness. Everything that is good and faithful about God and who he is and about the way he works and the way he keeps his promises, everything that Jesus did that, that was in line with the Father's will, we get associated, connected with that. And so he takes our sin, we take his righteousness. It's this unbelievable truth. It's this great new creation. It's this incredible reversal of the whole thing and all of it in service of God saying, I love you, my children who have gone so far astray. I love you and I want to be with you. And I will do literally anything to get you back. Like that, Romans 8, the, the point of the end of Romans 8 is this. God already sacrificed his son Jesus for us. What, what else is there to do? What else will hold us back? There's nothing that can separate us because Jesus has been offered. And so the, the path is wide open. I want to end here. I want to end with um, communion. It's, it's, a, it's our Sunday where we're celebrating this. And at the end of it all, as we come to this like, remembrance of communion, here's, here's what we do with this. When we look at communion, Jesus took his last evening with his disciples. He was about to die. And, and he took his last moment to be with them. And what they did is Jesus didn't explain. He wanted, he wanted to get them ready for what was about to come, his death. Jesus didn't give him one of the um, theories that we um, talked about earlier. He wasn't explaining a model or the, like the theology behind it. What Jesus did is he gave them a meal instead. And that meal was the Passover meal. This is like um, a representation of the Passover meal. The Passover being when God's people were enslaved in Egypt 
and God came and he tells them, like, look, uh, there's going to be a lot of death. I want you to sacrifice a lamb and I want you to take the blood of that lamb and you put it over the doorpost of your house. And, and anyone who has made that sacrifice and has the blood there, um, you get to live and you get to be freed from the slavery and follow me out into um, like ultimately into the promised land, getting to live with God. Like he would literally live with them. He led them out of this whole thing. So Jesus celebrates that meal significantly on his last time with his disciples. And then Jesus, of course, would go and lay down his life as the Passover lamb, the one that's laying down his life for his people. So in the same way that they were healed and reconciled to God, led out of their slavery, Jesus basically took that Passover meal and he took the bread and he said, look, this, this bread was all about we're going out. We're going away from this slavery. Get the bread. It's going to help us on our journey. He says, look, this, is, this bread is my body. It's my body and I'm breaking it for you. This is, I am the way that you're going to be led out of this thing. He takes the cup that's the, the, the wine that kind of pictures the blood of the lamb that's offered. And he says, this is my blood and it's a new covenant that I'm making with you. And so the whole thing that Jesus says, like, keep doing this. Do this as a way of remembering me and what I've done. All of it is inviting us into this story, into this meal, to recognize how we're healed and we're forgiven in Christ. And then there's, there's just the most basic meaning of it, at all, of it all, which is simply this. Um, communion is God inviting us, Jesus inviting us to sit at a table with him. He just wants to be with us. He invites us in for this meal that means so much, but at, at root, he, just, he wants to sit with us and belong and be part of it. So what we're going to do, we're going to um, wrap this time up by taking communion together. So on the table here, there's, um, there's juice, there's crackers, and I just want to invite you, um, come on up uh, now and grab what you need for yourself or for your family. Don't eat any of it yet. Just bring it back to your um, seat, and together we're going to eat this as a family. So let's do that now, and then we'll take it all together. <laughs>